0: I mean, different changed my life, right, because um, that's also how I met my husband <laughs> we ended up getting married after making that film or during making that film. Um, I think the interesting story about Diffrat and what I, what kind of blew me away at the time was uh, Zara Sarnay, um, an Ethiopian man, had written this script. Mm-hmm. And he is, he was a man who was born and raised there, you know, and I think what struck him about the story, everyone talks about the and, you know, um, these things that happened, but he's like, you know, his entry point of like, how is it that I never realized how violent this whole thing is? Like, how do you talk about, he's like, I know people in my family who's, you know, that's happened, like, how is it? And so I found, so when I read the script, when I met Z, this was, uh, 2009, when I met him um, and he showed me the script, I was so blown away that an Ethiopian man had written it, (laughs) right?
1: Well, uh, Dr. Meretz, um, it's it's incredibly exciting to have you on Les Soir. Um, as I mentioned, um, it sort of feels like a 360 moment for me as someone who really were, was inspired by your film Defret, um, and I'm looking to unpack that later in our interview, but. It's just I'm grateful. Thank you for being here um, and for really immersing our continent and Ethiopia in filmmaking and health policy. But before we dig deep, I I just wanted to understand sort of like your childhood, who you were as a young student, um, how you were inspired to be a physician and a storyteller.
0: Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I always love talking to younger people because it, it, I feel like it's, it gives me energy whenever I want to give up on the world. So thank you for reaching out. Um, And you know, my path wasn't a straight one, right? It's, um, it was a lot of, I always tell people dots connect in your life, looking back and not moving forward. And so I kind of figured out I wanted to be a doctor. I went to a um science and tech. I went to TJ uh science and tech in Virginia, Alexandria, which was a magnet school, and had a huge exposure to STEM um, and did well there. And then when I went to undergrad, was trying to kind of combine my love of people. I just I mean people fascinate me to no end, always have. Um, and wanting to serve and i think um medicine seemed like a way of combining all of those things. so i i did my pre-meds right away um I was very type a you know i like did all my pre-med requirements like two years or something because i was really set on like going abroad and so i did a study abroad my junior year in kenya yeah. and uh I always knew I wanted to do that. And when I was in Kenya, I spent some time um, at a, like a rehabilitation center for malnourished kids. And it kind of changed my life um, in the sense that, I mean, that whole semester did because, um, you know, this is a time when there was a lot of things happening in the HIV AIDS um, struggle, um, antiretroviral therapy had been, had, had, uh, had come on the scene and made a huge, um, difference in the West, but it still wasn't available there. And what I was seeing with the, um, malnourished kids, it just really, really was like an indictment of how powerful socially, social forces actually end up shaping people's lives and outcomes. And it just totally, uh, yeah, it was like radicalizing. Um, and then when I came back to campus, I was like, okay, I'm definitely doing public health and medicine. And then I had a very um, amazing professor, um, Jonathan Mann, God bless his school. He's no longer with us, but he's considered the father of the health and human rights movement. And I just remember coming back to college, you know, I was fancy school, I was at Harvard and trying to reconcile what I just saw with like my realities and trying to understand, okay, you know just feeling like you want to you want to do something about what you see and um he gave me a framework for approaching uh, my career and my life that kind of brought all of this together within a language of human rights and i've kind of been marching on that path ever since in many ways and um it's actually on that path um that led me to storytelling because I eventually would do a a master's uh, in public health uh, and medical anthropology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I was analyzing a piece of data, looking at HIV positive women's lives in Ethiopia and their experience of stigma. And it was literally people's diaries, like their diaries and their experiences with stigma and just reading story after story after story. women's lives and how much of it is also socially determined. Um, not even just health outcomes was something I kind of latched onto. And so my, that research got turned into a film and that's how I started to basically make films. Now I think most people at that point would have probably like not made another one, but I fell in love with it. You know, I really, really, really loved it. And um so I, I've always been a person to feed my curiosity. I don't like, you know, I believe like if you're curious about something, feed it. And so that's how it kind of all started.
1: Mm. Now hear, hearing you talk about sort of the cadence of your career, it makes sense why you pursued this film while you were a resident in medical school. And as someone who has friends and um, family who, ha- who are active in this space, I mean, I can't imagine how. How hard that must have been for you but it really showed how much you valued this this space and why you wanted to do it uh, and you you mentioned that this is what visual medicine was for you um can you tell us what that term means like how it came about
0: yeah so i went to a very like a gem of a program uh residency training program at Montefiore was the primary care and social medicine mm-hmm track, and it was really focused on kind of community-oriented primary care, so we actually had a research requirement. Um, mm-hmm. We were supposed to do a community-based project, and mine ended up being this film. Um, I pitched my, you know, residency program, Can I Do This?, you know, as a, because I wanted to continue my ethnographic film. I would go on, I'm very overeducated. I would go on to get a PhD in anthropology as well, but I wanted to keep going with that kind of research, and you know, a lot of public health is dominated by kind of quantitative you know, ones and twos and errors, and that's not the kind of work I wanted to do. So film was a great medium, because ultimately, I was really trying to have a conversation with my patients that was a little more honest. And so, you know, that film taught me a lot. um, And it was really in the outreach work, and and what came after, um, where I realized that oftentimes stories can actually heal. um, And when you give people frames for understanding their lives, especially people who um, kind of are always um, are, are, are either too sick, right, or too uh, busy uh, with their chaotic lives to sit down and really put a frame together. I think when you do, and I think that's for anyone actually, right? Like there, when you give someone coherence to their story, there's real power in that that's healing and cathartic. And I think that's where agency begins actually, right? you know, in public health, we have all these theories around behavior change and and how you create more engaged patients. But I really do think it starts with a certain kind of understanding about your life. And I think, you know, so the term visual medicine is really this belief that stories can heal, actually, right. And, um, and oftentimes, um, I think they're so powerful, because you can talk back to like power structures in a way, you know, like when I was a training in medicine, I was just kind of blown away by how limited some of the constructs were when it came to HIV and why people, why black women, were dying at a higher risk. I was like, you know, it's not just about individual risk, right? I mean, this is it's also about where you live um, and how those places position you at increased risk. So how do we talk about that? But you know, from our standpoint, we were still stuck in a dialogue of just put on a condom. You know, it was like, you know, everything was around the individual level and nothing around the, the kind of larger level. So I think film can be really good at trying to talk about a different scale of a problem using stories and um, hopefully getting people within those structures to also look at it differently. So that's how kind of visual medicine was born. Um, and that's how my production company, which I started with my producing partner who is still my producing partner, Lacey Schwartz Delgado. Mm-hmm. So it was truth aids when I was in residency cause we were really focused on HIV and then it became truth aid because I realized I'm not going to be just talking about HIV, right? We're going to be talking about all these social issues. And, um, so yeah, that's how it all, and we still use it. Lacey and Lacey is actually someone who, um, she was trained in, um, law. She was a lawyer. Yeah. Um, so we were both approaching kind of using media and she had, you know, started, a fi- she did a film project for her third year law uh, paper. And we both moved to New York and we realized we were using media in the same way. So we teamed up to form the production company. Wow. That's
1: incredible. And, and speaking about black woman, SDOH, social determinants of health, which seems to be, um, I I hate to say like a buzzword now speaking about vaccine allocation and how um, the black and brown population in America are dying at a very disproportional rate compared to the entire population. I think there's so much more um, funding and invisibility to SDOH, but you were able to unpack that when you were working on this film. You talked about how Black women were being affected by HIV, not just, you know, from being, having, you know, sex, it's more so um, where they're from, you know, their location, um, their zip code, trauma and violence. Um, how are you able to shift that narrative to, to kind of let people to understand that this is a whole design holistic problem that needs to be identified and dissected in a more detailed manner?
0: Yeah, I don't know that I can attribute that people actually believe, you know, understood it better. But I, I do think, um look, you have to present a frame, right? I mean, I think sometimes when you reframe a problem, what solutions are available look different. Like if you continue to just look at individual level risks and individual level things, then uh, a problem that has roots at the societal level, you're going to kind of always get the same outcomes. And so I think you know, with all of my film work, I'm always trying to say something um, hopefully new <laughs> or get people to reframe um, like an issue that they think is not even connected to their lives, for example. Um, and, I, and I think film is really useful for that, right? Um, because I think um, film, it's like when you're watching the medium, you're, you, everyone's an audience. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or you're on the patient or you're, you're whatever, your entry point is kind of a common entry point and you can start to um, reframe things that people actually think that they understand, right? So social determinants of health, uh, people have been working on this for a very long time, right? Well over, you know, know, 40, 50 years. The literature is there, but so much of human behavior isn't grounded in, in rational knowledge, right? And even if we know the knowledge, it takes something completely different to implement the solutions. And so I think especially... In academics, sometimes we think the papers are enough and sometimes we think the studies are enough. But I think with film, what's so interesting to me is like not taking knowledge and spreading it to the masses and making it more accessible and digestible. And um, the social, I mean, uh, uh, Lacey and I are working on a big social determinants film right now. And I think sometimes when you talk about the social determinants, it's almost like you're boiling the ocean because it can seem so like big, you know, uh, but COVID is kind of making it all very mainstream, which is useful, right? right? For all the people in public health, like, we've been saying this for a long time, right? I mean, you know, some people are writing, like, COVID is, you know, the same thing that's happening with COVID has happened with almost every other disease, including HIV. This is nothing new, right? Yeah. Um, It just became nationally, I feel like the mainstream now is aware. So what do we do with that awareness Is, is kind of the next is the next uh, question, I think.
1: Absolutely. And in your, I think this, this conversation ties really well to the next question. And using film to sort of create a framework on existing problems, um, and that's what you did with Diffret. Um, childhood and marriage is something that has been talked about, understood, unfortunately socially accepted in our culture. Um, and in your continued effort to tell stories that address social barriers, you were able to bring this um, amazing film, the Sundance film to us in 2015. Um, and as someone who is an advocate for maternal health, women's issues, that was for me, the first time I saw a really important and impactful social barrier really brought to like a larger audience. And so I really made it my my duty to bring that to the audience in in Boston. And Unfortunately, we did face some pushbacks because it wasn't being previewed and premiered in Boston. So through some through some social avenue, we were able to do that. And I was pleasantly surprised to see how much support that we got from the Boston community in selling out the film and having over 250 people actually want to understand why childhood marriage is a problem. And to your point, it kind of created a, f- a framework for them to say, like, this is why this is wrong. And what could we do as a society to take in it and address this in a different manner? And so I, I would love to know about your experience filming this movie, um, the social pushback that you may have had
0: and the premiere issues and not these. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Defrat changed my life, right? Because um, that's also how I met my husband <laughs> we yeah. ended up getting married after making that film or during making that film. Um, I think the interesting story about Defrat and what, I, what kind of blew me away at the time was uh, Zara Sarnay, um, an Ethiopian man, had written this script. Mm-hmm. And he is, he was a man who was born and raised there, you know, and I think what struck him about the story, everyone talks about the and, you know, um, these things that happened, but he's like, you know, his entry point of like, how is it that I never realized how violent this whole thing is? Like, how do you talk about, he's like, I know people in my family who's, you know, that's happened. Like, how is it? And so I found, so when I read the script, when I met Z, this was, uh, 2009, when I met him, um, and he showed me the script, I was so blown away that an Ethiopian man had written it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Someone who was, like, born and raised there, and I was just like, and I thought it was an amazing story, right? It was, and, and I thought, I think the other thing that blew me a, away was, you know, this lawyer, a powerful figure, and the idea that this legal aid, like, group of like amazing women lawyers, Ethiopian women lawyers, had kind of banded together to form a solution to a cultural challenge. It was like an example that culture can change and that, you know, talent within the country, um, smart, ambitious, and resourceful people can actually solve what a lot of people would say is not. And so for me, it was those two things was um, was amazing about the story. and you know, financing a film like Diffred is really hard because um, there's no stars, you know, there were no main actresses. um, And in retrospect, every time I tell the story, it seems so crazy. Um, And sometimes you just have to believe in something, I guess. But the turning point by far in that film, because uh, so the script was amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Z had been offered, you know, I think they, you know, some studio had offered, um, because he was working LA at the time to have Halle Berry, play Maza, to shoot it in English and not to shoot it in Ethiopia. And that was like the opposite of everything he was trying to do. So that's kind of when I got involved. And it's hard to make a film in Amharic and try to get financed. Um, but the turning point was Julie Maratu, who I think you've interviewed, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love Julie, and uh, I I knew Julie from New York. Um, but when her and Jessica came on as to you know to as investors, that changed everything. It actually made it. It went from possible impossible to possible. And um, you know, it was a great story. So you knew what he was doing. Um, Julie understood politically the importance of supporting art uh, from our perspective. And um, it was amazing. I mean, in a, in a way, um, you know, we, we did it kind of all on our own. And um, when we were going to premiere at Sundance, we had already gotten in and I, we were just processing all of these things. Um, the whole Angelina Jolie, um, connection, uh, what came through a collector, if I'm not mistaken of Julie's, you know, and Julie was kind of like, let's just send her a DVD and see, you know, like, and I was just like, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like the last thing I was thinking about. Cause we were just so tired. And at that point I had, we had just already had Lucas too. So we were not sleeping. Like Lucas was like, I don't know, three months or something. And so the fact that Angelina so kindly kind of and graciously put her name on it. Just took it to the, I mean, when that, you know, when that press release came out, it went from like this little engine that could um, to get, you know, garnering a lot of attention. And as for everything that happened with the premiere, I mean, this is how I'll say it. I think people have really... interesting perceptions of how the film world works. You know, I think because we won so many awards, including Sundance and in Berlin, I think people just thought we were swimming in money. You know what I mean? I think they didn't understand that, you know, we're in debt from that film. And that film was made, you know, with loans. And it's not like anyone, um, you know, paid it. I mean, when Angelina got involved, actually, you know, it was her name uh, as an EP, we had already made the film. And so I just think people thought we were swimming in money. And so, you know, Abishan Network, like, right. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of that. And so people just coming out of the woodwork, trying to get money out of us because they thought we were kind of rolling in it uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, But, you know, I think um, the film still I mean, it was the first film ever in Amharic on Netflix. Like, it was, like, sold to Netflix before that was even a thing you said, right? Um, And it had an amazing run. And, I mean, I can't tell you how many, you know, I've shown that film all over the world, including India, and I'm always amazed, like, everywhere, the UAE, like, how many people relate to that story and, like, the barrier. Like, it's not like they're looking at that film and saying, oh, those Ethiopians. It's like, oh, my God, this happens here, too. Like, the amount of places these issues of like abduction and kidnapping and child marriage and rape into marriage. Like it's, it just blows my mind actually. Um, so I think, and then, you know, Mazza's our president of the Supreme court now. I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, it's uh, so different was a game changer and, um, yeah, really, really positioned us to do everything we're doing now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, on a personal side, it sort of brought the conversation to our homes. I think it's sort of like, yeah, but Sean, I guess like hush, hush. It's taboo. Like, let's yeah. not talk about it. But I was just so happy that that the conversations left the theaters and it was internalized, and now it's in our homes, and we're challenging our parents' view on a lot of things. And it's sort of, it was sort of the domino effect of really challenging existing patriarchal issues that we face. And We don't want to inherit from our parents, and so I, as a young woman who really stood up and said, "This is something that we need to continue and have a conversation on," personally, that was sort of a turning point for I, for me, for a lot of my friends. Um, So thank you. It continues to be one of my favorite films, and having Julianne Lesa again, a whole 360 moment. Um, She's amazing. So that's awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the best comments, and it's it just, I'm sharing because it connects to what you just said. I, I think one of my favorite comments, because I was curious what like the older Abisha guard was going to say. I'll never forget it was DC screening and this old Abisha man stood up and he's like, "You, this film is a bridge between your generation and mine. Yeah. And. I think that's what films do at their best. They serve literally as a meeting point for people from different perspectives to try and see eye to eye. And I can't think of a more timely uh, or more needed, if you will, um, action of like trying to come from different kind of perspectives to some kind of meeting grounds, right? And uh, yeah, that was, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, talking across generations for sure, especially in Abishai culture.
1: Absolutely. What do you think from a policy perspective? You know, women's issues seems to be something that we continuously are putting at the forefront. Whether it's at SDG, global sustainability, when, what do we need to do as a society, as a diaspora, as individuals who are in public health and social impact space? How do we really differentiate the issue of women's issues when we're
0: bringing that agenda to these to these meetings? It's a huge question, honey. <laughs> but um, I think. You know, I think um, culture has to change, and I think funders have to start funding um, initiatives that are targeting culture. You know, I think you know there's this thing, there's this idea that services, services, services. Um, but you know, services are one part of the discussion. People will not use those services if culture doesn't change, right? And investing in Changing norms is a much longer horizon of change. It often doesn't match the way that funders kind of want to measure things too, right? I mean, there's a way to do measurement around it. But I think until we really start having targeted efforts that are looking at normative change for women and girls and really thinking about what we could do to create enabling environments um, at all scales, right? Not just either or, like all of it, right? Thinking about it from the policy level, thinking about it from, okay, service uh, provisions and what's available, and then using media and other kind of, and technology now too, um, whatever digital, to start to have conversations around pushing the needle a little bit on cultural norms, you know? I think... Until we do that, we're kidding ourselves, right? Because something, you know, horrible happens, and it all kind of comes crashing down. No one's using the services, you know, like, and it becomes like it's like a chicken and egg thing, right? And we keep doing one thing and expecting a different outcome. And it, for women and girls, we know for a fact, until culture changes, until people are brave enough to actually do the work um, in a, in a in a kind of engineered and strategic way, we're not going to get. Uh, far. I mean laws are only part of the answer. Policy is only part of the answer, you know? Mm.
1: And speaking of film and technology, I think I've never seen, and bringing it back into the whole uh, generational impact, I've never seen so many of our parents, our, the older generation, so active on social media. And so what better way to bring the issues, and like you mentioned, a framework around the issue of childhood marriage, um, mm-hmm. at early education, and menstrual cycle and providing that at an affordable rate um, to social media and you were able to do that, um, you know, at least begin to do that when you founded TruthAid um, A150 Films with, with Lacey and mentioned. But I can imagine going from a physician to a filmmaker was, uh, I guess, it might have been sort of, uh, I don't know
0: if it was easy for you. Was it easy? Like, did you, you know, uh, get pushbacks? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I have a whole talk on this. I mean, look, I mean, I came from immigrant parents who were like, what, you're doing what, you know, um, when I did it, but I always hid behind, you know, I still did public health and policy for a very long time. And then I started working for Obama. And it was like, I could do no wrong after that, right? It, they kind of forgot, right? It was like, working for Obama for three years. And so it was like, that, um made them drop any apprehensions. And then by then, my production company was really starting to flourish. So, like, when Diffret came out, we actually came out with two films. It was Little White Lie and Mm Diffret together. And so it was like a one-two punch, if you will. And both of those films did so well um, commercially and just um, in general, like uh, acclaim. So I think my parents slowly warmed into it, but I didn't really give them the space to, you know, strategic. You know what I mean? I wasn't like announcing my moves. Um, and I think to this day, look, society is going to try to put a lot of boxes on on your life, regardless of whether you're kind of, you care or not. That's just how people are. And I think the mistake that um, people make oftentimes is they internalize those expectations instead of kind of listening. Like it was so clear that storytelling was something that I loved to do and wanted to do more of. And, um, I just didn't let anyone, even, you know, the, the haters who were like, you trained and you did all this. I'm like, yeah. And you know, (laughs) life is not a straight line, but I think there is a lot, especially when it comes to like leaving something like medicine. I mean, I think the other side of it is, that medicine was a really toxic work culture. Like, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty toxic uh, work culture. And there were so many, even in the health disparities world, I met so many problematic people. And I was in like all of these shishi fellowships. Like, I'm like, if it's this problematic in this space,
1: mm.
0: what, are, you know? Like, and so I just jumped ship early because I realized my talents weren't going to be valued. And that was not the kind of work culture I wanted to place myself in. Um, So it's, you know, now you can talk about these things because it's more in vogue and people can understand it. Um, Like there's a framework at least for that stuff. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things about medicine that's problematic um, and uh, continues to be. And um, sometimes the do-gooder spaces, especially the impact spaces, can be the most racist actually, right? Because it's filled with people who really think that them doing good, their intention is enough. Yeah. And, and we already know that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And so you have to be a little more critical than that. But if you press that button and that group of people, you get into all kinds of crazy conversations. So yeah. anyway, a separate interview, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> I feel strongly about it. Um,
1: it's interesting you said that because as someone who works in this space, I'm always thinking about like, how, how am I pushing the needle on, you know, economic and health stability? Um, or am I continually creating and perpetuating a cycle of dependency for these countries? Um, you know, I'm, we're giving, we're donating product donations and we're saving so many lives. But at the end of the day, are we, is our good, uh, who's, who's really benefiting at the at the end of the day? And it's sort of a personal um, struggle that I, I think about. And it's hard because you, you do feel good at the moment, but then how, how do I get out of that and so, sort of independently support these countries, sustain themselves? And so we don't have to be completely dependent on, on the Western world in any capacity. But like you said, that is uh, dropping a, like you said, a puddle or a, a drop in the ocean. And maybe I'll have a chance to, to to figure that out. But it is
0: hard. You know, you're but all you have to do is make sure you keep asking that question. Right. I mean, I think the problem is when you can't even ask that question anymore, which is what happens because people just get stuck in the way that they're viewing a problem. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of literature written on this. Some of it very controversial. But I think this conversation of sustainability, it's actually why I'm very focused on job creation right now. Because, as someone who was really laser focused on health for a very long time, and I still think of health as like the fundamental opportunity, like without health there's nothing else, but jobs change lives right, and jobs also lead to sustainable solutions within local markets and within local places right there's got to be a way that you can stay in Ethiopia and still have a career and dignified work and don't have to leave and can can do all of these things right and so like um I think creating jobs is really, really an important piece of it, Mm -hmm. you know, the economic growth. And I think there's a huge, I mean, there's so much work we have to do around making the private sector actually be a real private sector. Like, you know, it needs to be easier for me to create even more jobs as a business owner, you know, and our tax policies need to line up with that. Um, There's so many things in that regard. So I think just asking the, keep asking the question, you know, I mean, some of these things, look, they're not going to be fixed in our lifetime, right? So, it's all about realizing, okay, this is what I'm doing and I'm handing it off, right? I mean, we're all kind of working, you know, we're just in a line of change, right? I mean, and we're all kind of marching together. So, um, I think the most important thing is to stay open and honest and, um, you know, keep asking questions Mm. uh, about, is this working? Is this the best thing? And not being afraid to say that um, when it matters. Hmm. And speaking of Ethiopia
1: and job creation, um, and you talk about this a lot in, in the recent TED Talk you did, you mentioned how arts in Ethiopia are sort of considered to, a nice-to-have but not a must-have, and how it doesn't really have a place on the economic growth timeline. And, and how, what do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, I think I look at these things because I would argue even here to a certain degree, I mean, here it's a lot more like arts will come up on your horizon as a job, you know, so I'm going into film and media like as a second career, right? It never came up on my radar at all. Like you could be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer or whatever else, right? And so I just think of, we think, like, especially in poor countries or whatever, underdeveloped, whatever the word is we're using nowadays, like, I think we think of it as, like, they've got all these other issues, right? And so the last thing that they need to be investing in is art. But what's so interesting, like, in the Ethiopian context, it's one of the oldest fine arts schools on the continent is actually in Ethiopia, you know? And I think Ethiopia's had this amazing history, whether it's through the music, through painting, um, of of art and expression, Ethiopian aesthetics is really, I mean, so culturally rich. And I think uh, we don't think of that as like um, having an economic contribution to to society. And I actually think it has both economic and democratic contributions to make, right? And so it's very easy um, to just write it off. So it's not even on the development agenda at all, right? Um, But it should be because when you look at creative arts as an industry around the world, you know, it's a huge, huge source um, of income generation, job creation. It's also like a field in which or an industry sector. I mean, there's so much within it. We're talking design, fashion, film, TV, you know music, um, advertising. All of this, the idea operates also around things like IP and having an infrastructure where people should be making money. I mean these can be sources for actual foreign direct investment. Um, look at Nollywood, right? Nollywood employs um, a huge sector of the society and was one of the most resilient during the financial crash, right? When the oil companies were crashing, Nollywood was booming, right? Mm-hmm. And so entertainment has always been kind of a robust and elastic um, sector, but we've completely underinvested in it. Um, and it makes no sense, right? Um, because I think when you look at all of and and I, which is why it's so amazing that the Job Creations Commission kind of included it in the National Job Action Plan and is starting to think about okay how, what do we do for for that to be a possibility you know in Ethiopia that you know education in, in terms of like actual schools that focus on all of that stuff are also kind of growing you know you can study now fashion and textile and all of these things and film. Um, but we really need to look at it as, look, this is a this is an area where people can make a lot of money, actually, right? I mean, <laughs> you really can, right? Um, it's possible. It can be secure. It can be, a, there is a professional pathway to employment. Um, and I think that needs to be socialized more and supported.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting because I think it's socially acceptable for, for us to go to these continents and markets and sort of like, I don't want to say seal, but reference our cultural garments or our, you know, uh, the needles and, and the the beauty of our clothes. But I don't think like building that brand in Ethiopia or any of these countries is supported and encouraged um, because they might not see the value of it. But so many people have become rich of. From selling
0: our clothes in
1: American and Western world. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. No, I think, you know, part of it is it's also because of the way we think of culture. I think in Ethiopia we still think of culture as like a thing that doesn't change. So it's like a building, right? It's uh it's like, you know, there it's things, but this idea that contemporary culture is actually something we're making every day, right? It's changing and it's modern, right? And I think that's part of why, you know, that that change. And so, like, I'm really focused on, um, along with a group of us, trying to start something called Ethiopia Creates. That's really trying to start that conversation in a real way, um, and trying to think of, like, you know, we had we organized an export mission to the European film market. You know, made sure picked filmmakers, trained them, make sure they could p- pitch to global market. I mean, there's so much talent um, in the in the younger population. I mean, it's it's incredible the talent, um, but it's like training them so that they can access the global market and do well and compete and all of that. um, That's kind of missing still the infrastructure for that. And that's what I'm hoping Ethiopia creates can kind of help fill in a way, you know?
1: Um, And training them and also allowing our community to be receptive of that change and that cultural shift. And, I see that so much more now in our music, um, especially like with okay. our, like Kasma, Rofnan. And when I hear like the older generation want to hear these artists and I'm like, wow, like how far did we come for you to enjoy an uh, EDM style Amarena music? You know, it, it just seems like we, we are moving the needle and people are being a lot more receptive, um, but th- there definitely needs to be a lot more push in storytelling and in that creative industry. And speaking of of storytelling TV, you're now the executive producer and director of social impact for Akana TV. That's amazing. Congratulations. Um, In a space where, again, this is not celebrated and championed, um, how have you continued to protect your vision, your artistry, with such a big platform?
0: Yeah, you know, Akana, I was really laser-focused on original content and kind of series drama original series drama and so you know Ghana launched on a dubbing you know a dubbing heavy model and I joined Ghana not to do that to do more you know series drama which is um what I was interested in and so I think it's a really interesting idea this idea of trying to produce something that's kind of premium content in a place like Ethiopia where the training might not be that Mm -hmm. and so for me one of the coolest things had has been having the opportunity to work with um, the original content team around training for serial drama. Cause serial drama is like at the you know at the high level, it's like a factory. There's so many things that need to kind of go right, and so that experience of like trying to do it over and over again with um, a TV show like, like Yang ya, um initially with um, What's an Inheritance was really um, is the best part of what I did. I feel like and. Um, You know, I think uh, like anything else, I think you have to, as a producer, one of your roles is to kind of like zone in on what is the vision for this project and keep everyone marching in that direction and then trying to marshal the resources to make that happen. So that's been amazing, you know, and um, Yang Yang has been a real, I think, um, line in the sand in terms of storytelling in terms of social impact by far, right? I think it is the most socially impactful uh, program ever in Ethiopia. And it's because it was designed in that way, right? And I think the Girl Effect Ethiopia team are just magnificent, a group of, like, amazing uh, women, Ethiopians, you know, Um, and I think they've done a wonderful job at really steering the brand and making sure it stays, like, focused on the target audience, and then also, like, for me, it's kind of a dream as a commercial partner to be, you know, that model of private-public is also not as explored in Ethiopia, and it's a way I've worked for a very long time because of Truth Aid. We've always had public-private in that regard, and so I think that way of working is a little newer. um, But it's been amazing to be a commercial partner for like a nonprofit entity and really think through how to achieve double bottom lines together, you know. And I think that Yangya has been a real success in that regard. And I'm hoping continues to be. um. Absolutely. Um, We watch it. My cousins and I watch it. (laughs) I love
1: it. Are huge advocates, and as we continue to watch it, I've never seen a show or a drama be so intentional about creating a diverse storyline. Um, when it comes to the individuals, when it comes to gender diversity, when it comes to religion, um, adversity, diversity—like you, you—I think it's been intentional to really embody the the diversity of our culture in Ethiopia um, and. How? Why was that important to you? And how are you able to sort of construct such a of holistic um, drama?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, Yenya is uh, a project of Girl Effect Ethiopia, right? And so, like, initially, so I've been on it since the first season. Um, you know, we had character profiles um, that that came out of you know Girl Effect did all of this formative research around these characters and like what would make sense. I was super excited about guys being integrated into storylines because I think sometimes when we think about girls, we leave the guys out. So I was already like excited about that. And we just worked together um, about trying to think through how, um, you know, I wanted to actually say this before taking a social issue and making it entertaining is actually very hard. Right. I mean like what Z did with different was very, very hard actually. Right. Because, um, it, it looks like it's easy but it's not because it can either you can it can either feel like you're spoon feeding medicine if you will you know what I mean um, and it can be too heavy-handed oftentimes uh, so trying to find the right kind of balance which you know we're getting better we're now season four I think season four is the actually the most entertaining so far of all of them in that way but it was part of girl effects kind of mission and vision for it was to really represent all of Ethiopia as authentically as possible I mean these are Ethiopian women writers that we, we trained, women directors, you know, female producer. I mean, it's from, you know, I think that all comes through in the storytelling um, because everyone... Um, we're all aligned in what we're trying to say about girls and giving them agency, but then also trying to present a world because in Ethiopian society, young people aren't exactly given a platform. You know, oftentimes it's kind of like, shut up, right? (laughs) Don't say anything. So this idea of opening up their world in a way that's accessible, girl effect always wanted to also, you know, bring music into it because music makes things kind of um, easier to translate. And it's like, it's like a hook because everyone loves music, right? So all of these things are incredibly intentional. The writing process is really like, um, you know, it's rigorous, um, lots of research, lots of talking to young girls all over Ethiopia, trying to figure out what, you know, what is the what with them, what matters, what's hitting, what's not. And so it is all about the social impact. Like it is, you know, like there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and it's very, very intentional from girl effects side.
1: And, and what I loved is, looking at some of the the actors on their social media and really understanding who they are in person is not too far from who, what they reflect in these shows. And I just love that you're not creating a character for the sake of it, but these are real life individuals who are operating in these spaces that you're reflecting on screen. And I think that's sort of the missing link that has existed throughout tradition um and bringing situations on a larger screen whether through music or through film um so i I really love that that's amazing
0: yeah the casting process was serious right to find those people we saw hundreds and hundreds if not thousands i think total i'm forgetting what season one numbers were when we were casting i mean it was a it was a very thorough casting call to try and find um the characters um yeah that's great so,
1: so we're we're almost at the end. I have two more questions, and the second to last one is sort of the state that we're in as a country. Um, you know, it's it's there's so much happening. There's so much adversity and sadness. Um, and you mentioned how we can use visual medicine to really unite one another in in the space and the time. Um, and so I wanted to know, like, how can we use storytelling to bring different voices, different perspectives, ideas uh, uh,
0: to one unit? It's a tough one. I mean, I think this is about as polarized as I've ever seen our community, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I remember the early 90s when this, you know, when border wars and Eritrea and all of that was happening as well. But I feel like now we have social media, which has made it all like so much worse in a way right um, it 's really it 's really difficult and, and in all honesty i 'm still trying to get clear on wrapping my head around all of it um, because I think we need to not politicize everything right I mean there is a serious humanitarian crisis as well, and so I think it 's about. Look, I'm I, I'm still, a, you know, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm still a doctor at my heart. And so, you know, I'm thinking about what can I do um, to the people who need medicine, who need help. Um, that's where I'm focused. So I'm very focused on love and medicine. <laughs> that's kind of my frame for all of this right now. Um, and trying to get, you know, I'm working with a group of doctors, um, trying to get medicines into, you know, the regions that need help right now, but... I think we have to stop politicizing it all. We have There has to be a way that we keep the country at the center of all of this uh, and the people. We have to be able to walk um, with care and love and, um, you know, talk across divides. Um, you know, it's not dissimilar to all the stuff that was happening in America, in all honesty. I mean, um, these are all just kind of fundamental conversations with um a vision of democracy that actually holds opposing views and tries to do something productive with that right but obviously in in this case there's so much history also involved and um so what i find so demoralizing right now is just how toxic yeah. social media actually is you know you cannot it almost feels like you can't say anything productive and so these are the spaces where I think art actually has a huge role to play, because I think it can create an opening where there isn't. I feel like everything feels so close right now, you know, and, you know, the international coverage is also problematic, right, um, on many levels. And so it's all weighing quite heavy on my heart. And... um but I do think there's a real role right now for storytelling. And so I'm exploring that. Um, I'm not comfortable to really say yet. I haven't made a decision in what way, but I will, you know, I will definitely do a storytelling project uh, focused kind of on what I can do as a, as a, as a former doctor. And also just keeping the humanitarian lens on things of um, love and medicine and really, because it's also amazing how many people are mobilizing resources and also trying to do something, um, which I think is a story worth telling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are excited to see it and, and support you in any way. Um, I think it's interesting, you said, the dialogue that's been created in the, in a constructive, but also in a very divisive and um, just in a sad manner in how social media has uh, sensationalized so many things um, in that in that same breath I think it has given the opportunity for again this multi-generational connection and dialogue to exist and push back on existing knowledge and culture that our family our elders have known and understood and been passed to um, and so I mean before I, I, I got on to talk to you, I was having a dialogue about this with with my family. Like, this seems to be the continuous conversation about, like, what's happening, um, debunking things, and sort of, like, challenging existing uh, notions and ideas. And I do, I really do, as someone who's very passionate about my country, I really do hope that we do come to a positive and safe space um, for everybody to exist. Um, And so, that's what I would say on that. Um, But... As my last question to you, I always ask this question to all my guests, um, and I will definitely internalize this uh, this feedback because, I, as a storyteller, I'm always curious to know how I could I could be better. Um, what is your advice and words of wisdom to young girls, women who, who want to be in the space that you are, who who've accomplished, who received the accolades? Um, and I say that because you are in a space that's not championed and sort of criticized um, when individuals are thinking and pursuing singing, creative industry, and artistry?
0: I mean, my big, best, my big advice to you is you have to invest in yourself and you have to believe in yourself, right? I think as especially young women in this world, you're kind of so- oftentimes socialized into kind of not trusting yourself. It's something that I feel like we're taught um, and silencing, you know, in various ways. And so to... To have the courage to kind of um, follow what you're feeling, you know, and have, have, have the courage to invest in yourself and to bet on yourself, even when it's not popular, you know, and look, you can have a nine to five and still try to kind of start to cultivate your skills. And so just continue to work at it you know, continue to work at it. And it, I think it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, you know, and it's not until you've put in your hours that you're gonna kind of, I think, see the fruits of your labor really taking off, if you will. But but trust yourself, because I think what the world tries to do is get in between you and your own instinct often, mm-hmm. right, so... Um, to kind of believe in yourself against against all odds. That's what I think it takes um, to start to really, because anything in the arts, anything in kind of arts and culture requires having a POV and a point of view. And in order to have a point of view, you actually have to know what your voice is first, right? Mm-hmm. And, and who you are. And so I think that that journey is no one else can do that journey but you of like figuring out what is your take on things you know I always tell people like one thing about kind of doing it second in my life is that I really had so many experiences to pull from that I had a real POV I had some things to say when I was ready to say it and so yeah um, stay the course that's my big piece of advice stay the course
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here.